0: Red Cloaks Radio is a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Go. Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Laura Benessy. And we're super excited that we have Ann Litman with us today as a guest. Hello, Ian. Hello, Jesse. Hello, Laura. Hi, Ann. Thank you so much for joining us to jump in for our series, My Body, My Story. We're collecting stories and reflecting on the experience of abortion and we're really <laughs> excited to talk about it, even though for people, there's a wide range of experiences. The exciting part is continuing to break the stigma of just talking about abortion, because for too long, too many people have felt very uncomfortable and we wanna be part of changing that. So thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. We'd love to start out by just getting sort of a sense of, a, you know, a little bit about you and, and why you're interested in potentially helping talk about storytelling around abortion.
1: Well, I've been wanting to tell my story for a long time, so I'm grateful for this opportunity. Um, I feel, um, I think, I, like many of us, I got a little lazy once Roe came into being and abortion became legal in the United States, because uh, I remember the time before it was legal, and I have, I have stories to tell that I think are really important, but I didn't really uh, tell them until now, and so... Mm-hmm. I'm grateful for this opportunity
0: it's so interesting it feels like we can unpack some of why we think it is the way it is but i know i met someone at a social event before covid when there were social events and it's someone i'd never met before and the um, person learned i was involved with red cloaks and turned to the side of her husband like away from him and then whispered to me immediately, like I just met her, and she said I had an abortion, but my husband doesn't even know. I would totally participate, wow. and it was very interesting. It was such a, it was just very striking um, yeah. to feel that you know she would feel really comfortable telling me she just met me four seconds ago, um, but not feel comfortable talking to her life partner. Yeah, I'm, I see that our uh, our virtual doorbell is ringing, and so I'm going to answer the doorbell. Hello, Martha Leticia. welcome. Hello, hello, I'm
1: here. Hi, Martha I'm Martha. Hello,
0: hello so let's let's go back in the in time a little bit and um, help us situate where you were and what was going on and um, we'd love to hear about your experience.
1: Okay, well, I would say that the the important time frame here is pre row. Mm. It was for me nineteen sixty six ish. And I, I had, uh, uh, it was my fr- sophomore year of college. I came to the University of Wisconsin from uh, rural Kansas. And I don't think I had ever really thought about abortion or really knew really anything about it. But my sophomore year, beginning of the sophomore year, I found my roommate lying in a pool of blood on the bathroom floor from a botched abortion. Wow. And that was the beginning of my lifelong commitment to trying to keep abortion legal and safe because she almost died of hemorrhage. Wow.
0: Incredibly, incredibly uh, frightening and scary. So to be a college student and to come in and find your own roommate in a a situation that is life-threatening like that and really not have a context for placing it, how did you, how did you, what internal strength did you draw from to address the situation?
1: Well, I was, I was, I was totally terrified and traumatized. First, first of all, in fear for her life, because she really did almost die of hemorrhage. And then as I came to understand what had happened, uh, and I came to understand uh, about illegal abortions, about botched abortions, about back alley abortions. As I came to understand that what she had experienced was something that was happening uh, for lots and lots and lots of women, I just became outraged. And I think that that is uh, always been true for me. That when I see something that's not right, my my internal drive uh, from outrage is to is to do something, is to find some way to do something. And so I have been involved in one way or another in, um, in abortion rights ever since.
2: Wow. Can, can you tell us how?
1: Well, I will say, I will say that in those college years, I'm, I'm trying to reconstruct, it's over 50 years ago now, 1966 to 1969, I was in college at the University of Wisconsin. Abortion was illegal in Wisconsin. And the nearest big city was Chicago in Illinois, it was also illegal in Illinois. And so I don't remember exactly how it happened from that, how I transitioned from that moment of outrage about what happened to my roommate, to getting involved in a a group of people on the campus. I don't know whether I organized the group or whether I just found them after this happened to her and I became aware, but I got involved with this group of students on the campus who, uh, who, who were committed to getting women to safe abortions. And so that meant that we didn't necessarily always get them to a doctor because we didn't always know whether the person was a doctor, but we people had reputations in Chicago as uh, being um, safe uh, providers. Uh, and so we. I was part of a group then that uh, I spent a, a great deal of my last three years of college being part of this group that uh, posted, we posted our names and phone numbers all over the campus, wow. on in cap, uh, ca- campus bathrooms, mostly in the in bathroom stalls and women's rooms. I think that was our main way of communicating because what we were doing was illegal. But so, And we, we had fundraisers, there were like lots of people involved in this. We had to raise a lot of money because uh, a, an illegal abortion cost $800 and you had to show up in Chicago with $800 wow. in cash. It could have cash. And so we had to we had to raise the funds. We had to uh, we had to find the illegal providers and track their reputations. We had to uh, have pools of drivers to take these women to back alley abortions in Chicago with $800 in cash in their pockets and then sit in the alley, literally in the alley and wait for them for hours and hours to come out, hoping that they would come out that they would still alive oh that they wouldn't have just been ripped off and left, I mean, you just didn't know what was going to happen. It was all very terrifying, but it was the only choice we had uh, to be able to get abortions for women um, and that's and I, so I was a part of this, this group um, and it was a very very central part of my college years Wow.
2: I, I have I have chills and I want to start to cry just listening to you, what you did for people back then. And it seems like so long ago. And and yet we might be heading in that direction again right here in Massachusetts even. And I, I wonder, too, like with all of the um, the anti-abortion, um, you know, fear tactics and and actually, you know, threats, um how, how, did you have to deal with any of that back then, or has that changed since, you know, since this wave, this new wave of fighting has come around?
1: I would say that that came later. Mm-hmm. But at this point, while abortion was still illegal, and my, my experience was that the, the all the fear was all about uh, knowing that we what we were doing was illegal, mm-hmm. knowing that the women we were helping might be endangered. Um, just through our help. And uh, by, by, you know, being taken advantage of in some way, by uh, shady people in in these back alleys. Um, But uh, so we were afraid, we knew we were doing an illegal, it it wasn't there weren't, there weren't people attacking us, though, that came later. Uh um, I have to say, and I was involved in stuff later, and went through that part. It's It's just
2: amazing to me that that, you know, even when it's illegal, it, um, you know, the, you weigh out the, the, what you were saying was so visceral, you know, you don't know what to expect with somebody who's performing an illegal abortion yet that weighs out. And that's, that's better than the alternative, which it is. And, and the other side doesn't realize that or doesn't want to.
1: Well, was the only option we had, right? There was, right. There was just no other option. These, these, at, at, these were all young women who were not in a place that they were not necessarily students, uh, but they were not in a position to have a child and they were desperate.
0: When yeah. you say they weren't necessarily students, do you mean there were a faculty or a staff or people outside the campus who learned about you? How did those connections grow?
1: Yeah, I think I don't remember being there being faculty so much as uh, as uh, community women. So we were in Madison, Wisconsin. It was a, it was capital of the state, a fairly large, small city. And uh, women found us. Uh, so w- the word got passed along. Our phone numbers got written down. And, and uh, people would call us. And we didn't ask any questions. We just uh, helped them.
0: People who've had 50 years of, at least on the books, legal access, even if they couldn't afford access, people are trying to understand what it felt like before Roe. And so I want to dig in a little bit around race and class. Even when it is legal, some people who are wealthier or white have better access. And yet still, depending on where you live and your zip code and your state, you know, it all varies. But can you take us again back? So we're in Madison, Wisconsin. It is the capital. Are the people you were seeing, are they all wealthy who are getting access or some of them poor? Are they, you know, you talked about a range of age, but can you tell us more, were people all white? What was the range like of people? Mm.
1: I'd say they were not wealthy. If you had, if you were a wealthy person during those times, you could find a way to get an abortion. There were like hoops and loops that you could jump through um, and uh, people you could pay. Uh, uh, But these were not wealthy people who we were helping. Uh, And I would say Wisconsin is basically a very white state. So I would say they they were more white than of color, but there were people of color as well. Um, there were very, very few students of color on the campus. I think it was uh, less than 1%. So uh, wow. people of color would have been from the community. But, um, yes, we, we, we had community people find us, uh, and we just folded them into the process. They were not wealthy, though.
0: What kind of support was there for people after the abortion? Was there a you know, place to talk about it? Was there counseling? Or were people... On their own how did that work out
1: well we did follow up our our group whatever this informal group was that however it formed which i don't remember uh we did follow up um for one thing uh, we we did counseling beforehand in our unprofessional best way we could we did counseling and then we did follow up and then uh if there were complications then we helped them find a doctor. But again, it was difficult because it was illegal for doctors to to help them. But we had we had people they wouldn't perform an abortion, but they would help a woman who might have complications. So we um, you know we had we, so we we did what we did as 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 citizens. Uh, we did what we could to follow up with people and we stayed in touch with them and the and the $800 was a loan. Uh, to the best of their ability, we asked that they pay it back. And so uh, that was also part of the interactions was, uh, you know, staying in touch around so that we could continue to fund other women. Sure. Uh, and everybody couldn't always pay it all back, but people did what they could. And there, and there was that financial management part of this that somehow we did um, around cash.
0: The other thing you mentioned is you didn't ask questions, about, and it seems a little crazy to have to spell it out, but I think we should, you know, why? Why were people seeking an abortion? Even if you didn't ask them individually, what was your sense of what was going on?
1: Well, for the, for the young students, for the students who were, they were young, and they, uh, these are accidental pregnancies, and they had no, they were you, you know, young, single, Uh, unable to support uh, you know another human being you know to raise it and so it becoming bringing a child into the world was just it was out of the question often it wasn't a matter of uh being an option either to like have a child get up give it up for adoption it was something that they it just sort of uh changed their lives ruined their lives uh in terms of the uh the their, their options in the world. And so they just, it was just an accident and they just had, you know, they were desperate. Yeah, so the young women, the campus women were were definitely young women, they were young. Uh, the community of women, uh, more likely women who already had children, uh, whether they were single or not just could not afford another child.
0: Sure. The other thing that's maybe uh, important to understand about the setting is, you know, why were people getting pregnant? They were having sex. Why aren't they just using contraception?
1: Yeah. So, uh, that, you know, it seems like a, a, an obvious question. The birth control, birth control has has never been a hundred percent. And certainly at that time, everything failed. The pills failed, IUDs failed. Um, uh, uh, the, um, I can't even remember. It's been so long ago now that the, 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 the thing, Did You inserted, failed. And so uh, even if you were using birth control conscientiously, which is not that easy to do uh, when you have to uh, use it each time, they they, they failed. So there were lots of reasons why people got pregnant and and it was unintentional and they just uh, they couldn't they couldn't carry it.
0: The internet tells me that the FDA only approved the pill in 1960. So for people listening, you know, just to get some sense of like, it's a relatively new invention at the time. It's not, it's not been um, tested for multiple decades as it has now. And there weren't
2: the varieties either, you know, now there's so many varieties of pills so that if you don't, if you have a reaction to one, you can try another. And back then, if you had a bad reaction to one, that was it, you were done.
1: And, and back then, I think they actually only became available on college campuses the year I was a freshman. I don't think they existed before that. The, the dosages were all wrong. They made yeah. people sick. Yeah. People couldn't take them. I mean, they, they, uh, some people could, but a lot of people just couldn't even take them. And a lot of people didn't even know about them. Right. And so, yeah, it was not, they were just not that available. Um, they didn't work that
2: I way. wonder, were they like really expensive too, like inaccessible that way?
1: I remember that I could, you could go to the school infirmary if you were a student and you could get them. But I remember it was a very embarrassing thing to ask for it because that meant you were acknowledging that you were sexually active and that was still a very shameful thing sure. uh, This is when dormitories were locked at night at eight o'clock. I mean, it was like, it was really a time when, uh, it was, you know, sex was still very, very shameful. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't okay.
0: I think actually we're at a very juicy moment, but we would love to um, make this a two-parter and have you come back to continue the conversation because the shame of sex, uh, we can talk about how that contrasts then and now. If you don't mind spending a little more time with us, we would love to. Glad to. You've been listening to Red Cloaks Radio, a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Find us at bostonredcloaks.com.